the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This is our problem. We all, each and every one of us, long for a better world in which everything and everyone gets along in harmony according to some preordained pattern. And we, each and every one of us, long to be the center of that world, the fixed, immovable point about which everything and everyone else revolves. Clearly, that is impossible. Something someone has to give. But who does not hear in their heart of hearts that little voice saying, that may be, but it sure as heck not going to be me. I like the music, by the way. (laughs) Very appropriate. (laughs) Today is ostensibly a celebration of John the Baptist. Another one. The lectionary carries on. John is an ambiguous figure. He'll be with us until Epiphany, may I point out. He is a saint, a member of the communion of saints, which is the, by adoption, community of the brothers and sisters of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Lord. Yet John really has little to do with Jesus. He does not join the disciples, so he does not become a follower of Jesus. He always stands off to the side. So whatever Jesus has to say and do, John does not hear it. He simply points to Jesus, admirable, and then steps aside. We, however, are called to follow Jesus. No easy thing. In fact, it is easy to point to Jesus and then head off on our own. We do that all the time. It's a good thing that Jesus has taken as one of his own models that of the shepherd. The sheep follow the shepherd, and then they don't. And when they don't follow, the shepherd follows the sheep follows them until he finds them and brings them back to the fold, if they are his, that is. Jesus comes to us where we are to lead us where we never want to go, to places we never want to leave. Let me say this once again. This is from Ashley Null. Jesus comes to us wherever we are to lead us where we never want to go, on paths we do not want to go on, to places when we get there, that we never want to leave. This is Letere Sunday, Gaudete Sunday, a Sunday of joyful celebration set in the season of Lent as a beacon of hope. The rose pink candle, which we shall light, signifies joy. Joy in the midst of the uncertainty and even the anxiety of Advent. Anxiety, and yet all today's readings are full of the theme of restoration. So from them, this one particular verse pops out from Isaiah. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities. 
the devastations of many generations. In the original and in the Greek translation, which is all built around variations of the word heramos, from which we get hermit, the connotations of desolation, loneliness, abandonment, wilderness, a desert which has been loved and lost perhaps, dominate. We're in a place which now provides habitation for nobody. Yet something is going on here, and it is a building up, and it is a repairing. The pattern is plain. Something was built, something was torn down, something is now being restored. What is that something? The land that was promised, perhaps, to those who heard it originally when it was split asunder by civil war. Jerusalem, perhaps, for those who came later. But for us, it is not just history either. It is our history. It is our present, and it is our future. If so, what is this work of restoration? It is the work that we are to be about, and that God is all about doing through us and around us and in us and in our midst. That which has been cast down is to be raised up, and the king is coming. The reign of the king of, is coming. His kingdom is coming. And what does the kingdom bring to those of us who await it? It brings the power to love. The king of the kingdom restores to us the power to love, to love him, and to love one another. What is love? <laughs> to love is to seek the benefit of others. And to love is that which we were commanded to do by Jesus. We quote this at the beginning of every service. None of us listen to it. How can we? The response, Lord, have mercy, is most appropriate response that cannot be found. How do you command someone to love? And yet that is what Jesus is doing us, calling us to do, to love God and to love our neighbors. We cannot do it unaided, and that is a human problem. If we could seek the benefit of others 24-7, earth would be heaven. The kingdom would have come. But we cannot, and it has not. I was reminded recently of the first time I was put on notice that the kingdom was coming. I was in school in Vancouver, B.C., in Canada, my last day of grade six, and then I was on to junior high. The Gideons had given us all New Testaments. That is that New Testament. You sure can't do that in B.C. anymore, <laughs> but this was 1962. I have it written in here on the front page, presented to Marty Johnson, March 6, 1962. Maybe not the last day. There it is. There's many good things in here. New Testament, Psalms, and Proverbs. That's how they did it then. My decision to receive Christ as my Savior is written on the back page. It's left blank, as you can see still to this day. <laughs> Perhaps, <laughs> But perhaps God in his grace has sought me at other places. It, it's about as concise an expression of the gospel as I've ever seen. 
Confessing to God that I am a sinner and believing that the Lord Jesus Christ died for my sins on the cross and was raised for my justification. You cannot do better. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. I do now receive and confess him as my personal Savior. They gave this out in schools, you know, by just pointing that out. Well, that's at the back. And here in the front, of course, Union Jack. (laughs) Naturally. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Proverbs 14.34. Then we have some nice hymns. Abide with me, of course, O Canada. And this hymn, The Maple Leaf Forever. I quote, we don't sing this much anymore either. In days of yore from Britain's shore, Wolf, the dauntless hero, came and planted firm Britannia's flag on Canada's fair domain. The maple leaf, our emblem dear, the maple leaf forever. God save our queen and heaven bless the maple leaf forever. It brings a tear to my eye and it is a very beautiful tune which goes with it, which I will not sing. (laughs) God, queen, and country. Actually, to paraphrase chariots of fire, queen, God, and country in that order. This was British Columbia after all. The provincial motto was splendor sine okazu, splendor without setting. And the sun never set on the British Empire. We knew that that empire had had its high noon and that the sun was going down. But we could still bask in the warm glow. We were not a big nation, but we had once been part of what was once upon a time the greatest empire the world had ever known. And I think we knew deep down the wisdom that if you have to be part of an empire, it's better to be part of it when it is waning than when it is waxing. I do look back to those days, these days, with that very much in mind. A lot of my past is coming back, and in researching something or other historical, as you know, images often catch my eye. I've seated the front of the bulletin cover to Brad, Kathy, and company, and they have responded with these very beautiful, beautiful covers. You notice that the pink box surrounds the third Sunday of Advent, but it means I've given that up as a place to put an image or two with which I could anchor what I was going to say. Well, I brought the image, nonetheless. (laughs) And I have it here. You might be able to see it at the back. Zaniska girl, maybe eight or nine, in ceremonial dress at some gathering of tribal elders. Statistically, this girl is probably a Christian, and if a Christian, she is most likely an Anglican. So we may look forward to seeing her again. I hope so. The photo is quite recent. On the 11th of May 2000, the government of Canada, in an unprecedented move, carved out a chunk of territory and established an autonomous entity around the Nass River, what is now called the Niska Nation, the first of many such arrangements in which the wrongs of the past were to be corrected. The Niska received about 2,000 square kilometers, about the size of Rhode Island, 
The Nunavut, who came later, did somewhat better. They received 2 million square kilometers. That's twice the size of Alaska. What the government did to attempt to either to address the wrongs of the past was to grant self-government to those same nations that they had once tried to either assimilate or exterminate. They said, neither one works. We didn't get rid of you. We couldn't throw you in the melting pot. So we're going to grant you autonomy. And within the Federation of Canada, these First Nations have the power to make laws, to enforce them, and to control natural resources. Unless we think too quickly about two million square kilometers of tundra, we should remember that it's not what's on the ground in this world, but what's under the ground, gold, uranium, oil, etc., 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 that matters. So the government has shown a remarkable spirit of generosity and grace as well. They should. Like the promised land, there were people already there when the first colonizers of the west coast of Canada arrived from Britain. Among the first were missionaries, Church of England, sent by the SPCK, like James Benjamin McCullough. If you were a missionary, you came out on your own, found your way to a settlement, threw yourself on the mercy of the people, learned their language, and then began the work of translating the scriptures and, in McCullough's case, large parts of the Book of Common Prayer into Nishka, as it was called. And this book of prayer was published by the SPCK in 1890. It's still in use. You came to where the people were. You met them where they were, like Jesus. You stayed with them, lived with them, loved them, died with them. You brought Jesus into their lives any way you could, and if you succeeded, he stayed on even after you had left. There were others, however, coming to this new land who saw things differently. They had their eye on the land and not on the people. Their goal, as they said, was to kill the Indians in any way, but preferably to kill the inner Indian to make them white. Whether or not they were Christian, they would prefer to see them at least Canadian, which meant British. Then came the residential schools, and we'll be talking about those in Epiphany when we get to the readings on the massacre of the innocents. Well, on this empire, the sun has set. The question we ask is this, what kingdom are we trying to build here and now? And whose kingdom? We grow to expand the range of our hearts, to let God's heart become our heart, God's love for all his creation, all his creature, all people, to become ours. And as we painfully grow to see the reign of God expanding, reaching out, and through us in an embrace of belonging, that for which the whole world longs, for which all of creation groans, we make our way awkwardly. What family does not have one child of whom and to whom it is always said, it's all your fault? What classroom does not have its black sheep? The boys and girls with whom no one will associate. What chat room 
or other social space does not have its scapegoats too, whose lives can be ruined by the electronic reach of a few well-timed, ill-chosen words, whose lives can be taken, young girls even, who wouldn't or couldn't fit or had broken social rules that not even they knew existed, someone else's rules, who were harassed and hounded to despair and maybe even to death. You see, if there's a theme in this, it's finding a model for us for Israel at the time Jesus came. Like it or not, we're the Romans. And it's very hard for us to find a way to identify with Israel. The sin and shame of my land, my homeland, God is using to help me learn that. Learn about him and about his grace. Why this is happening, I have no idea. But it is. Whatever I say is that whatever kingdom, king or queen we may serve and celebrate, there is only one king and there is only one kingdom. And Jesus has no time for the sufferings that we bring to others because of our inability to reach out and embrace them. His kingdom can connect with any culture, can come into any heart, anywhere in the world. Christ plays in 10,000 places. He wears 10,000 faces, as Hopkins wrote. You don't even have to speak English. You don't have to be English. You don't even have to be an Anglican. So, it is Advent, and there is reason for joy. The kingdom has not yet come, and injustice and its suffering do remain. But we do not have to wait one more minute in order to begin to set things right, in order to live the life of the kingdom here and now. That's the whole point. And the life of the kingdom is love. That's all. We heard it at the beginning of the service. It doesn't stick in our memories, but Jesus sums it all down to two commands. It is so simple. The hard saying of the Bible, this is the hardest, and we waste so much time on so much else. The life of the kingdom is love. That's all. To love God, to love one's neighbor, and to love even one's enemies. Because when Jesus came, he pushed what neighbor was beyond anything in the Old Testament. To love those God loves. Next week, we will hear about another little girl, Mary. Maybe a little older than this one. She took her life and handed it over to God and said, let me be the outsider, let me be the despised one, let me be the scapegoat, even if I must give my very life. Mary, we do well to think well of her, that girl, and the gift that her gift has brought us. For the Niska nation now, the words of the prophet Isaiah do indeed ring true. They shall build up the ancient ruins and shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Despite the terribly awkward circumstances that surrounded their conversion, the church has fought valiantly 
fearlessly and sacrificially for these people. The Anglican Church of Canada, from which I am estranged, has shown here one of the most glorious pages in the history of the Christian Church. And when the time came to pay back what was owed, one entire diocese was liquidated to begin to make financial restoration to those the church had wronged. And this was done in such a way that both church and people were able to continue together in the most remarkable spirit of repentance and forgiveness. It's not been done without controversy. No good deed goes unpunished. But it has been done. And the church's leadership has helped to sway the heart of the entire nation to accept the settlements which have been and which lie ahead. The faith of Jesus Christ has stayed with these people, as I said. Statistically, there are more Christians among them by far than there are among the descendants of the former white settlers of British Columbia. That is an understatement. The faith has dug in deep. Suffering has given it substance. And it has miraculously transformed the heritage of these people, even as so many in the white man's world have dropped this burden and let it go. McCullough's Book of Common Prayer, still in use, has been joined by other liturgies in Nishka. And their faith remains strong and vibrant, even as the villages that they were forced to abandon are rebuilt and architecturally brilliant new structures inspired by their traditional ways of building enshrine their new governance and proclaim their hopes for their future, a hope fired by faith. And the wilderness becomes for them once more a land of a promise kept. Christ can do that. His work is bigger than we can see. But trust me, he is always at work. And he looks for those who are listening and watching and waiting and ready to act. Christ keeps on doing that. And he invites us to let him, through us, reach out to expand our embrace. To love the unlovely, to love even our enemies, to extend his love to the ends of the earth. May his kingdom come. Amen.